Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll be hearing part two of two of what happened to Oakley Carlson. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Last week, we went through why Oakley Carlson was removed from her biological parents, Andrew and Jordan's care, before she even turned one, and how for some unknown reason, she was rushed back into their care after her foster parents, Eric and Jamie Joe, had loved and cared for her for years and were under the impression that they were going to adopt her. We discussed Oakley coming home from a supervised visit with her biological parents with marks on her cheeks, and after an unsupervised visit, came home to tell Eric and Jamie Joe that she had witnessed Jordan assault Andrew. Eric and Jamie Joe told DCYF about the countless concerns they had about Jordan and Andrew's ability to care for and provide for not only Oakley, but her siblings as well, but it never seemed to matter. Towards the end of last week's episode, we talked about the fire that broke out at Jordan and Andrew's house, which they didn't call into authorities until seven hours later after they said they'd put the fire out themselves. With the principal of Oakley School, Jessica, having valid concerns about what was going on in the home, she planned a play date with her own child and Oakley's six-year-old sister, Abby. It was during that play date that Abby told Jessica that there was no Oakley and that she'd gone back to live with her foster parents because she was so bad. Oakley was not back living with Eric and Jamie Joe. Suspecting that something was very, very wrong, Jessica called for a welfare check on Oakley. When police made a visit, Jordan initially lied to them about even being Oakley's mom, and Andrew lied about where she was. Police noticed the family only had one car seat in their vehicle, though they had three children, six and under, and after following the couple and Oakley's younger brother to their burnt home, Andrew reportedly made statements to the effect of Oakley being dead or not coming back for a reunion. Jordan was so uncooperative that she was charged with obstructing a police officer. Whatever happened next led both Jordan and Andrew to be booked into jail on suspicion of first-degree manslaughter. The Independent reported that once Andrew and Jordan were in custody, officers figured out that 10 minutes after they left the hotel, after their first contact with police, one of them factory reset their phone. Whichever one of them did that wasn't specifically named in the article. A factory reset is a whole commitment and wipes literally everything off your phone. You no longer have apps. You don't even have your contacts. Officers obtained a warrant to search Andrew and Jordan's residence and property. I specify property because, like we mentioned in the last episode, it was massive. 300 acres of very dense woods and sporadic fields. A police report stated that a search of the home revealed clothing and toys for all of the children except Oakley. It was also noted that they found blood spatter on the blinds near the front door, 
on the front door and a handprint on the hallway in the downstairs hallway. The report doesn't specify whether or not the handprint was in blood, but let's remember that this search was done after the fire. Anyone who touched a wall in that house would have likely left a handprint in the soot. So for this specific handprint to be singled out, it makes me think that there was something significant about it. The Chronicle reported that a fire investigator was called in to look over the damage from the November fire. They determined that the fire likely started from the microwave on the kitchen counter and not from the couch as Jordan and Andrew had claimed. That being said, I'm not totally sure how they came to that conclusion. Obviously, I'm not a fire investigator, but there are photos of the fire's aftermath, and one of them includes the microwave. It seems almost untouched with a crap ton of stuff sitting on top of it, and even a white ring around where it looks like it might have shielded the wall from soot. The couch, on the other hand, is obliterated. It clearly seems to be the most deeply burned item in the house. While officers searched the residence and property, Oakley's siblings were being interviewed. A police report noted that at first, six-year-old Abby told the interviewer that she does not have a sister. She later changed her mind and said Oakley was her sister, but she hadn't seen her in a long time. After saying that, Abby was quiet for a minute, then told the interviewer that her mom told her not to talk about Oakley. Abby added that Oakley had gone out into the woods and had been eaten by wolves. When the interviewer asked if Oakley was hurt, Abby didn't respond and started to cry. Even though this is ridiculous and I would hope that a child being eaten by wolves would be reported to literally anyone, the police EMS the Pope, I did some research on wolves in Washington and found a literal wolf pack map. There were zero wolf packs documented in Oakville. Eric Hiles told Never Seen Again that he believes the children were told Oakley was eaten by the big bad wolf because she was bad, which there are no words for. A police report stated that Jordan's nine-year-old son from a previous relationship, who we'll call Ben, told law enforcement that he sometimes saw Jordan beat Oakley with a belt and put Oakley in the closet, possibly under a stairwell. Ben told officers that he had been worried about Oakley starving. I looked online to see if I could find any plans of the Carlson home to see the mentioned closet under the stairs, but it was built in 1916 and there's nothing but aerial photos of the property. According to the Charlie Project, nine-year-old Ben also mentioned the November fire and said that when it happened, everyone got out of the house except Oakley. Add that to the growing list of stories about what happened to her. While authorities scrambled to try and locate Oakley, Jamie Jo got a call from DCYF asking once again if she had seen Oakley. She, for the second time, said that she hadn't. They then had the nerve to ask if Jamie Jo and Eric would be willing to take in Oakley's two-year-old brother, Aaron, and Oakley once she was located. Of course, the Hiles said they would take both of them in and were overjoyed at the prospect of getting their Oakley back. Jamie Jo told Nancy Grace that she immediately went out and started buying things that Aaron and Oakley would need once they got to her house. The Hiles told Never Seen Again that they were under the impression that DCYF would find Oakley quickly. They thought maybe she was with a family member or worst case scenario, Jordan and Andrew had taken Oakley and were evading police. It never occurred to them that Oakley wouldn't be found. 
According to an interview with Nancy Grace, Jamie Jo got the terrifying news and a phone call from a friend while she was shopping at Target. When the Hiles were notified that Andrew and Jordan had been arrested on suspicion of manslaughter, they could not believe it. Their worst fear in the world of worlds had come true. It became too difficult for them to care for Oakley's little brother, Aaron, so he was placed in foster care along with his sister, Abby. Jordan and Andrew's children from previous relationships once again stayed with their respective biological parents. On December 7th, the day after Oakley should have turned nine, the sheriff's office, FBI, state patrol, and other agencies continued an extensive search of the 300-acre property. They brought in divers and aerial support and later widened their search to surrounding areas, but they couldn't find Oakley or her body anywhere. The sheriff's office reached out to the public for help, stating, Detectives consider the circumstances surrounding the child's disappearance as suspicious. The parents, Jordan Bowers and Andrew Carlson of Oakville, are considered persons of interest at this time. The parents are currently in custody at the Grays Harbor County Jail. Justice for Oakley reports that through their investigation, officers were able to determine that the last credible sighting of Oakley was on February 10th of 2021 when CPS went to the house. That's 299 days prior to when investigators realized she was missing. 299 days. The Independent further reported that investigators have yet to find any evidence that Oakley was alive after the family was displaced by the fire on November 6. Before December 7th was over, Abby's temporary foster parents asked law enforcement about medication prescribed for the six-year-old. They hadn't received the medication and needed to give it to her. Investigators looked into the medication and found that Abby hadn't received it for 15 months. On December 9th, the 72-hour hold for suspicion of manslaughter was coming to an end. Authorities didn't have enough to file formal charges, so they decided to charge Jordan and Andrew with abandonment of a dependent person in the second degree, which stemmed from them not giving Abby her medication for 15 months. The other charges against Jordan and Andrew were dropped due to lack of evidence. Dropping those charges meant investigators could conduct a more thorough investigation into Oakley's disappearance, which would hopefully lead to further charges down the line. Just four days later, on December 13th, authorities announced the search of the family's house and property and surrounding areas was over. I don't think I've ever seen a quicker search of 300 acres. The undersheriff told KIRO that during their seven-day search, crews had done everything they could. He said, if there's burn piles, we're going through the burn piles. If there's any fresh dirt, we're looking in the fresh dirt. Any crawl spaces, enclosed spaces, we're checking everything we can possibly do. The search of the residence is complete and she was not located. The undersheriff added, detectives are still actively investigating this case. There are no other searches underway at this point.
On December 15th, Oakley's paternal grandparents, Fred and Kate Carlson, whom officers stated helped with the investigation, released the following statement. The Carlson family have been and continue to be fully cooperating with this investigation. Our only objective is to find our granddaughter Oakley. We're praying that Oakley will be found soon and also for the multitude of good people working around the clock to make that happen. We ask that the media respect our privacy during this very difficult time and we do not wish to make any further statements for now. Thank you. I want to reiterate here that Fred and Kate have fully cooperated with this investigation. Justice for Oakley reports that on December 30th, Jordan and Andrew appeared in court for allegedly not providing medication to Abby. Although this hearing had nothing to do with Oakley, prosecutors did bring her up. They alleged that Jordan and Andrew clearly know what happened to the five-year-old child and they're not saying anything. Many of Oakley's supporters, known as Oakley's Angels, showed up to Jordan and Andrew's court appearance. Jamie Joe told King 5 News that the point of the demonstrations is to let Jordan and Andrew know that Oakley's Angels are there and they're not going anywhere. To this day, they continue to show up to every court hearing. On January 20th of this year, 2022, authorities added some new charges. They charged Andrew and Jordan with two counts of endangerment with a controlled substance. After finding out that Abby hadn't received her medication, DCYF obtained both Abby and her little brother Aaron's hair follicles. According to Justice for Oakley, Testing showed substantial amounts of methamphetamine in both children, indicating they were exposed to the drug in the last three months. Andrew and Jordan both pled not guilty. On January 29th, demonstrators held a rally outside of Grays Harbor County Jail. They were demanding answers from Jordan. Standing in the parking lot, they chanted, Make her talk, tell us where Oakley is. One of the demonstrators was Jordan's nine-year-old son, Ben. He told the Chronicle, I feel like I want some justice. I want my mom to tell us where she is finally. At the demonstration, the Chronicle asked Jamie Jo if she thought Oakley was still alive. She answered, I think that there's always going to be that little part of me that is going to believe that she's out there, even though I might think otherwise. Like, maybe my gut tells me that she's not here with us anymore, but I still want to have that push. In February, Jamie Joe filed a complaint on behalf of Oakley with the Office of Family and Children Ombudsman, an organization that, according to their website, oversees child-serving agencies with independence, impartiality, and confidentiality. That same month, Light the Way, Missing Persons Advocacy Project, started a weekly email and phone campaign to contact Governor Inslee, Attorney General Ferguson, Washington legislators, and DCYF leadership to request an immediate outside agency review of Oakley's DCYF case. To this day, the campaign continues every Thursday. On March 14th, Andrew entered into a plea deal where he pled guilty to two counts of endangerment with a controlled substance. As part of the deal, the abandonment charge was dropped. Two weeks later, Andrew's sentencing hearing was held. KIRO reported that when asked if he had anything to say, Andrew told the court, I deeply regret my feelings as a father. I haven't done a lot of things correctly in the last seven years or so. He did not tell anyone what happened to Oakley or where she was. 
The judge said that the charges were tragic, especially considering Andrew was a former police officer. He knew the dangers of methamphetamine around children, yet he did nothing to protect his own. The judge told Andrew, it's a father's job to protect their children. You certainly failed in that. Andrew was sentenced to 12 whole months in jail. KXRO reported that the negotiated sentence was between 6 and 12 months. The judge could have gone over the 12 months, but she didn't because Andrew didn't have a prior record. In addition to the jail sentence, the judge ruled that Andrew must not have unsupervised contact with anyone under the age of 18, with the exception of his biological children, an exception that feels like it defeats any of the purpose. On April 8th, Jordan also pled guilty to two counts of endangerment with a controlled substance. As part of her plea deal, her abandonment charge was dropped as well. Two weeks later, Jordan's sentencing hearing was held. King 5 News reported that the prosecution and defense had negotiated a 15-month sentence, but the judge chose to up it to 20 months due to Jordan's previous criminal history, dating all the way back to 2005. Charges include hit-and-run, disorderly conduct, DUI, fraudulent use of a credit card, and theft. And just like Andrew, Jordan wouldn't be allowed to be around any children under the age of 18, with the exception of her biological children. Again, an exception that seems to defeat any purpose of having a stipulation at all. They couldn't be around anyone else's children, but their own, the ones their charges were in reference to, were fine. Over the next few months, Eric and Jamie Joe continued fighting for justice for Oakley. They met with the ombudsman multiple times, continued sending letters and emails, talking to the media, and everything else they could possibly do. They also held Paint the Night Pink, an auction and dinner for Oakley that raised nearly $50,000 for her reward fund. On August 3rd, Andrew was released from jail after serving less than nine months for child endangerment charges. By court order, he was scheduled to undergo a chemical dependency evaluation and come up with a treatment plan before a hearing on September 12th. On September 9th, ombudsman released a report regarding their investigation into how DCYF handled Oakley's case. In a shocking decision, the report cleared DCYF of any wrongdoing in their handling of Oakley's case. The report stated the investigation included a full review of all relevant records and documents and interviews with individuals with direct involvement or information about the department's handling of this case, stating our investigation particularly focused on family reunification efforts, permanency planning, and the department's response to any identifiable child safety or risk factors prior to and after Oakley was returned home. We found that the department's actions and conduct in this case were consistent with laws, policies, and court orders. Our investigation, however, identified opportunities to improve services to families and specifically to preserve and strengthen the parent-child bond when a child is removed from the home. Family time or parent-child visits are critical to promoting bonding, attachment, healthy child development, and successful family reunification. Our elected officials and agency leaders must ensure that adequate resources are dedicated to family time services so that parents and children receive the maximum visitation possible. 
Furthermore, reunification planning should not only focus on parents' successful compliance with services, but should also address parent-child bonding and attachment issues. We have documented the issues and findings raised in this investigation and will include them in our annual report to the governor and to the legislature. If you are at a complete loss for words at this point, you are not alone. Jamie Jo told NW News that she's concerned DCYF has become so focused on reunification of families that the agency has lost sight of its core mission. She added that she hopes something good can come out of Oakley's case. She said, I think she can really save some kids' lives. Hopefully DCYF can reform and really focus on what they're meant to do, and that's, you know, protecting children. I'm pretty sure we can all agree with literally everything Jamie Jo just said. On September 12th, Andrew was a no-show to his chemical dependency review hearing. Shocking, I know. The judge issued a bench warrant. After Andrew showed up to the courthouse, the warrant was quashed or voided, and he was scheduled for another hearing. A few weeks later, Andrew gave the judge paperwork showing he completed treatment in August. However, he still hadn't completed an evaluation or treatment plan. He was ordered to complete them within a week. On October 3rd, Andrew was found to be in compliance with the judge's orders. However, the judge said she would continue to monitor his compliance. That was the last update we have regarding Andrew and Jordan. As of this recording, Jordan is still incarcerated and Andrew appears to still be in compliance with the judge's orders. The investigation into Oakley's disappearance is still ongoing with the help of the FBI. A member of law enforcement told Never Seen Again that they hope to find Oakley alive. However, and I quote, unfortunately, based on the circumstances of the case, they're not sure that that will be the outcome that they receive. Jordan and Andrew remain suspects in Oakley's disappearance. Investigators are still working on gathering enough evidence to bring forth charges, and they're hoping to speak to anyone who saw Oakley in the year of 2021. As a reminder, the last credible sighting of Oakley was on February 10th of 2021. Investigators have yet to find any evidence that Oakley was alive after the family was displaced by the fire on November 6th. They want to fill in any possible gaps between those two dates. In February of 2021, Oakley was a four-year-old girl standing three feet tall and weighing 50 pounds. She has brown hair and brown eyes, and there is currently an $85,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of Oakley Carlson. Anyone with information is asked to call Detective Sergeant Paul Logan at 360-964-1729 or by email at sodetectives at co.grays-harbor.wa.us or call Crime Stoppers at 800-222-8477. Of course, I will list all of those in the show notes. If you don't have any tips to share, you can still help Oakley by sharing her story and her flyers, which are available in English and Spanish on the Justice for Oakley website. You can also donate to the Reward Fund, join the Facebook group Oakley Carlson, Oakville, Washington, and ask your favorite news channel or podcast to cover Oakley's story. 
I want to end this episode by reading a portion of a letter Jamie Joe wrote to Oakley. It says, I know that I didn't give birth to you, but I wish I did. You were everything I'd ever dreamed of having in a child. Daddy and I wished and waited so long for a baby, and even though you came to us in an unconventional way, I loved you like you were my own biological child. I loved when strangers would tell us that we had the same smile because it meant that people thought I could have even an ounce of your beauty. I will never forgive myself for not protecting you more when you went back to your biological parents. I thought I was doing everything by calling CPS and making reports to DCYF, but it didn't save you. And for that, I am sorry. If I could mail this letter to you, I'd want you to know that you're making waves and that so many people are taking action. People in our little town, our state, and around the world know who you are and are thinking of you, praying for you, and doing everything in their power to make sure you're found, and that this doesn't happen again. I knew that you'd be influential someday, I just wish it wasn't breaking our hearts in the process. Thank you for loving us, and I promise you that we will do everything we can to bring you justice and to protect your siblings. Love, your mama. For all photos pertaining to Oakley's case, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there on Monday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case on Monday, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.